0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Americans who remember World War II reminisce about how it brought the country together. Popular mythology of the period holds that all Americans were patriotic and supported the war effort. But this was far from the case, from the German-American Bund to sketchy American businessmen. And the most dangerous of all, the America First Committee, the United States, was deeply divided. And Hitler's American friends, the Third Reich supporters in the United States... My guest Bradley Hart examines the strange terrain of Nazi sympathizers, non-intervention campaigners, and other voices in America who advocated on behalf of Nazi Germany in the years before World War II, demonstrating how the United States nearly succumbed to the threat posed by fascism and National Socialism. Hitler's American Friends exposes the homegrown antagonists who sought to protect and promote Hitler, leave Europeans, and especially European Jews, to fend for themselves and Elevate the Nazi Regime. It's a great book, and Bradley and I had a great conversation about it. I Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Bradley Hart. Bradley, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Hitler's Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States, is your new book. Now, th- what what strikes me about this book and its relevance is this is a story that is often not there it doesn't get a lot of attention today or in most probably American history classes I mean you mentioned charles Lindbergh and there there there's some attention to that but you you chronicle just how relatively widespread this phenomenon was before Pearl Harbor that this actually you know, there that our involvement in World War two was not at all inevitable, and there seemed to be some knowledge of that in Germany, and and there were many people who, for various domestic reasons, were pretty... Against the United States intervening on behalf of our allies,
1: absolutely, and that's why I wrote the book because this is history that's been left almost completely out of the textbooks. Um, I used to teach American history at the college level, and I would re- see maybe one or two sentences referencing America first, referencing Charles Lindbergh, but certainly nothing near the treatment that this issue deserves. and you're absolutely right when you say that our involvement in World War II is by no means inevitable. There was a huge pressure. There was huge pressure in this country to keep the U.S. out of the war for a variety of reasons that I document in the book. There were a large number of people that were outright Nazi sympathizers that wanted us to cut a closer relationship with Hitler and uh, in some ways approved of his policies towards the Jews and his foreign policy in Europe. There were other Americans, and I think this is one of the more interesting findings of the book, who wanted to keep us out of the war because they thought it was simply a bad idea. They thought that it would result in bloodshed that was unnecessary, it would result in huge military expenditure, and some people feared that it would result in Franklin Roosevelt becoming a dictator in some ways along the lines of a Hitler or a Mussolini. So there was a wide variety of reasons why people opposed this, and it was, again, by no means inevitable we were going to get into the war.
0: Yeah, and, and don't you almost have this in our founding DNA? We, you know, the, the founding fathers being wary of foreign entanglements, and, and and this kind of hope that by being by being separated from our the continent we came from, you know, by like an ocean that 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 this would be a good thing to be a little hands off. <laughs> globally. I mean, there's that seemingly in in the political DNA.
1: Absolutely. That was the Founding Fathers' vision, was that we should be removed from these European conflicts. Remember George Washington's farewell address, he warns against entangling alliances and essentially warns against us getting involved in ancient conflicts happening in Europe and other parts of the world. So this is not only a facet of the American political experience, really. It was the predominant foreign policy view up until 1945. We have to remember that after 1917 and 1918, when the U.S. enters World War I, there was a huge pushback in this country against the idea of ever getting involved in a foreign war again. And this obviously feeds into what happens in the 1930s. There is also a massive debate that unfolds in this country over European war debt. So this is something else that's sort of been left out of the history books. But Uh, the Allies, Britain and France primarily, had borrowed huge amounts of money from the United States and never paid it back. And so when they start asking for military aid in the 1930s as Hitler is building up his military, a lot of people in the U.S. say, no, you haven't paid back your previous debts. We're not giving you any more money. And some politicians, some more hot-headed voices in Congress, actually start asking for um, British military bases in places like the Bahamas as compensation for this money that had been lent. So this is an incredibly complicated period. And as I was researching the book, I realized that even I, as somebody who has taught American history, didn't know much about this stuff.
0: Yeah, and you begin the book with this kind of dramatic scene where Charles Lindbergh is addressing the American First Committee, which, again, there's some knowledge of that as you've as you've mentioned in in some historical consciousness out there. But you kind of say that the, the, this is a sort of culmination. This isn't the intro. I mean, this is. There's lots of grassroots movements that. For various reasons, for religious reasons, for business reasons, uh, 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 for national, uh, for kind of ger- uh, germophile uh, germ- uh, or Frank, uh, would you call it germophile, I guess? Um, germophobe. Yeah, germanophile. Because germophobe would be like what Donald Trump is. Germanophile would be the, <laughs> the, the the, 11- uh, the, the, America first. Uh, it figures out some ways to kind of harness this energy that from disparate groups. Right. And, and you have a figure like Lindbergh who can unite them, but this was not something they were building top down. So there's a lot of sentiment for staying out of the war and, and that's really sympathetic to the Nazis.
1: Absolutely. And I I I think Charles Lindbergh is one of the most fascinating figures that I encounter in the book or, or discuss in the book. Um, Because he is this figure who had always had an outsized image in the American sort of experience in this period. Remember, this guy is considered a national hero because of the 1927 flight across the Atlantic. Then a few years later, his son, Charles Lindbergh Jr., is dramatically kidnapped and killed outside his home in New Jersey. Um, so this is a guy that had been in the news for years, was genuinely seen as a hero by many people, and had this huge outpouring of grief and support. I mean, it was considered to be the trial of the century um, when uh, Bruno Hauptmann, the man accused of killing the Lindbergh baby, is put on trial and eventually executed. Um, but even outside of that period, Lindbergh then goes to Europe, and there are people, and this is one of the more interesting things I found in the book, there are people who start talking about him as a future president or even a future dictator in this period. There are people in the German-American boon, which becomes a sort of radical, radical pro-German, pro-Nazi group in the later years of the 30s, who are talking about Lindbergh as being sent to Europe for some greater purpose, that there are forces at work that the American people aren't aware of, but they'll know what's going on at some future date. So he has this really outsized influence. And I think when, um, when he gets involved with America first, a lot of people read more into that than perhaps Lindbergh himself wanted people begin to interpret his actions as this is the final arrival of this man who's going to become the future American dictator, at least, at least a president, maybe even a dictator. Um, and so I think that kind of explains why he himself is so surprised at the reaction to some of the remarks that he makes, especially, as you mentioned, this famous speech on September 11th, 1941 in Des Moines, Iowa, where he, for the first time, explicitly blames the Jews for the outbreak of war in Europe. It's a really dramatic moment.
0: Yeah, and the there's some weird parallels here, right? That just like today with the kind of populist nationalism that we see in Europe and that a different kind here, but I'd say there's probably some family resemblances that swept Trump into power. You have people that are would say, hey, wait, this isn't race-based. It's not anti-Semitic. And then you have people that... that are that do you know in the alt-right and, and, and which is attempted to seemingly kind of dress themselves up these days and become more respectable and you have this internal tension you have it then right some of Lindbergh's anti-semitism is really some of the people in the kind of america first america, no 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 well that's going to make us sound crazy right like they, they they wanted to make it a little more mainstream and we're worried about Lindbergh's move here
1: Yeah, and and it's a really dramatic moment, again, because there's this split that you're describing, absolutely correctly, where the more respectable voices, remember, America First has 800,000 members. Uh, It also has major members of Congress who are at least peripherally involved with it. And we're talking people who are U.S. senators who are going out and stumping for this stuff. So there's certainly a great amount of fear when Lindbergh makes these remarks that, hey, this is going to make us look crazy. This is going to make us look like the Nazis. But then one of the more interesting things I discovered was that in America First's own files, there's this huge outpouring of anti-Semitism from their own. Own membership. People who are writing to Lindbergh and saying, thank you for finally exposing what I've been saying for years. Um, and so there's a big split that takes place between the rank and file and the sort of, quote-unquote, respectable leadership of this organization. And I think there is an analogy here for the present day, where, as you say, the alt-right is trying to make itself respectable. They are having some success with that. But when um, there is a pushback against overt racism, there are certainly people within that movement that are saying, no, no, this is what we need to be doing. We're finally telling the truth. We're finally putting the message out there that that our supporters want to hear.
0: And, and, you know, I feel like because of our sort of historical retrospect, you know, how we, how we remember events now, some of the things you describe seem so... That just like that you you find yourself incredulous right when you're thinking because we think of like nazis the worst thing you can be right in political discourse you compare somebody to a nazi no no it wasn't the kind of i mean most people at the time that were much more concerned about communism than fascism and even you talk about Jed Hoover and the fbi that you know they wind up there's a fascinating british intelligence agent you talk about in the book a little bit who's got some he's doing some sort of pro propaganda getting the war america you know stuff against Nazis and 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 you know Hoover likes him at first then kind of is bothered by him and, and just not so the intelligence agency they don't see nazism as the pressing threat that now we imagine oh everybody saw it as terrible i mean it wasn't it, it wasn't as scary as communism right
1: yeah that's right um communism is seen as the much scarier ideology partially because we have to remember there was the red scare after world war One, nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen, 1918 1919 where there were actual communist propagandists and saboteurs arrested in the united states so there was much more history with that than there was with with nazism which of course comes on the scene only in 1933 the FBI is obsessed with, com- with the threat of communism. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, as I point out in the book, misses many opportunities in the mid-1930s to really take a, a big stand against um, both Hitler's intelligence network in the U.S., but also Nazi sympathizers more generally. FDR, on the other hand, is much more interested in that and asks Hoover on a couple of occasions to investigate things that he himself uh, doesn't want to investigate. So there is this sort of uh, weird rivalry. The other thing to remember, and I think you've pointed out accurately, is that the United States in this period was at the center of a propaganda war between the Nazis and particularly the British. The British did have an extensive intelligence network in this country because they treated us in this period like an intelligence target rather than like an ally, which we were because we were not officially allied with them and there was no guarantee that we were going to enter the war. So the British do run a huge propaganda campaign. They also have intelligence agents on Capitol Hill that, very importantly, are reporting back to London about what is going on with the isolationist uh, congressmen up there. As I point out in the book, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who reads it, um, the Germans were, in fact, running a very extensive propaganda campaign there to convince congressmen and the American people that the war was already lost, that they should not get involved with the all, and that Roosevelt needed to be replaced.
0: Yeah, and this is, again, where history seems to eerily, there are echoes. In this this sort of propaganda campaign that Germany was engaging in, their goal was a little amorphous right so confusion pit americans against each other make cacophony tension so so that there's not a uniform uniform voice to do something you know the kind that like churchill was able to marshal in england right that, that people just you know it doesn't in fact they were a little wary of too much pro-nazi stuff right because that might make people suspicious so it's just and you think about russia's goals right now like putin's goals and the disinformation it seems eerily similar it's just like hey let's keep americans distracted fighting against each other so that you know, I can kind of exert myself in my sphere of influence. Like I, I just need them sort of not looking at, hey, look over here, look over
1: here, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I think there, there are some very eerie parallels and as I was going forward. You know, I started working on this project in 2014, 2015. And so at the time, none of this stuff seemed very contemporarily relevant. And then as we've gone forward in time, uh, suddenly I started seeing echoes in the news of the things that I was researching for the book. And so it was kind of a very weird feeling, but that's absolutely correct. What they were trying to do is confuse the American people and confuse Use our political will in this country. And so they were putting out mixed messaging all the time. They were condemning the British for their alleged atrocities in India and Ireland, simultaneously messaging that the British couldn't possibly win the war, which is somewhat contradictory when you think about it, because the the previous argument's based upon British strength and (laughs) brutality in some ways. And so they're messaging things simultaneously. But fundamentally what they were doing, and we do see this with disinformation campaigns today, especially on social media, is they were trying to pit pit, pit Americans against one another based upon fault lines that already existed. So pitting Americans who might have anti-Semitic leanings against the country's Jews, which they do quite effectively, um, pitting Americans who are more internationally minded against isolationists. The real goal here was just to up, up the tension. It was to up the conflicts that already existed in this country, as you say, to distract us from what was really going on and what the American people should have been talking about.
0: So it's sort of like the idea, like, politics ends at the water's edge. So let's keep everybody from the water's edge. Like, like, let let's keep everybody focused internally in in dispute.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't see any evidence really that the Germans believed they were going to convince the United States to ally with them or join the war against Russia. I mean, certainly they would would have loved that if that had been a possibility. But without defeating Roosevelt, um, that was going to be impossible. And so the goal in the really the goal for German propaganda throughout the war was simply confuse the Americans. Um, try to keep them out of the conflict as long as possible, or permanently. And sure, ideally you're going to defeat FDR. Ideally, you're going to have a anti communist alliance similar to what they had with with Japan. But it never got to that point because Pearl Harbor intervened. And it, when Pearl Harbor happens, of course, there's no chance the U.S. is going to stay out of the war.
0: And Hitler, I mean, you. you talk about people having to convince him of america's significance i mean he had a view of america that he didn't take it seriously he said you know i feel kinship with any european nation more than the united states and he saw that he thought because it was had too much racial diversity he doesn't view it as as one of these great historic nations right like he he thinks it's already rotting from the inside and so he has a tough time taking it maybe as so he likes the technology the skyscrapers and things like this but he doesn't take it seriously as a world power, right?
1: Well, he takes it seriously as a military power because, remember, he's seen America essentially turn the tide of World War I. So he certainly fears America coming into the war. But as you say, I, I have some fantastic quotes that I found from people in his inner circle talking about how, as you say, he doesn't really understand anything about America. He just sort of has this vague idea about its industrial capacity and that it can put a lot of soldiers on the field of battle But he does think it's doomed because he's fundamentally a racist and thinks that racial diversity is a weakness. Um, He thinks that capitalism is a weakness because it is only driven by profit and that can't possibly be successful in the long term. Um, And so he he really does underestimate America's potential and he underestimates America's will to fight. I think this is why they are able to engage in this sort of campaign to confuse American public opinion because they fundamentally believe that Americans can just be distracted really easily. And to an extent, they're correct. Yeah, and this
0: idea that something like capitalism... Is bankrupt for him because it's it it it's too it, you know it's not something that ultimately will kind of command people's loyalties right it's not it, it's you know I I I've been reading Jonah Goldberg's new book The Suicide of the West and he kind of argues that like you know for most of world history tribalism has prevailed and and he sees certain he argues that kind of there's a kind of nationalist romanticist reaction to the enlightenment and to this global these global ideas that is actually he th- he argues you could argue it's evolutionary natural right it's it's the liberal project is is the thing that's not natural and yet it reduces violence it re- you know it, it it creates foundations for greater rights and, and all these things but you know it's it is the, it, this idea that liberalism and its economic foundations have are are, are fragile I, I mean there there's a truth to that right like, like <laughs> when when there's periods of chronic anxiety and stuff, it's not hard to get people to rally against the liberal project and, and, and sort of accede to our lower angels and tribalism and things like this.
1: Yeah, and remember, this is what Hitler and Mussolini have both done in, in Germany and Italy is they've come out of a world where you have weak democracies in both countries after World War One, uh, especially the Weimar Republic, but the Italian d- democratic system is by no means healthy either, uh, and they overthrow it. And Mussolini explicitly says that, that democracy is dead that it's a dying ideology, it's a, it's an old-time thing that's going to pass away. Um, one thing we have to remember about fascism and National Socialism is that they're fundamentally about the young, they're not about the old. And you have all these dismissive quotes from people like Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, talking about how once the older generation has passed away, then fascism can truly be unleashed, because it's all about youth and vitality and doing all these things. So yeah, they do, they do fundamentally believe that liberalism is a outdated Ancient ideology, and that fascism is the wave of the future. And they also fundamentally believe that fascism's victory will come when it defeats communism. So it's an ideology that's based in the idea of conflict, but it doesn't really take the prospect of democracy winning that conflict seriously. Um, and the other interesting thing is that at the end of the war, when Hitler is, is is ensconced in his bunker and about to kill himself, he talks about how the real victors of this war have been the communists. He doesn't believe the United States has actually won the war. He thinks the Soviet Union has won it. And in his racist worldview actually begins to concede that hey perhaps the german aryans are not the superior race perhaps it's actually the Slavs.
0: (laughs) what these are things like you know it's this is you you want the hitler uncut album from the bunker you know it's sort of (laughs) like when william shatner puts things to music you wish hitler would have sung some of this stuff you know with it (laughs) that's that's so crazy i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Barry Stewart. Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garibedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Let me ask this as a historian. Are you and your colleagues, like when Donald Trump starts saying America first, are you cringing and thinking, come on, man? I mean, have you never read a history book or what? I mean, it, 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 do you think that's a, a dog whistle kind of thing? I mean, what do you make of his explicit use of that, of that term?
1: It's a really great question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. I, I've considered the possibility that it's a dog whistle, but I'm not sure who that would be dog whistling to, because certainly anyone who's an America First supporter originally is almost certainly either very old or, or dead at this point. So it's, I'm not sure that the awareness of what this was is out there to a great enough extent to make it a true dog whistle. But I think it is an accurate representation of what President Trump is doing. Um, and one thing we have to remember that I talk about in the book is that America First was not just about the war. It was an entire worldview that was opposed to Franklin Roosevelt, opposed to internationalism, one of the United States to cut itself off economically from essentially the world trading system, Uh, the only exception being the Western Hemisphere, which was supposedly given to the United States with the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, And so this was a far more extensive movement than I think people appreciate. The war was just the issue that they were campaigning on in 1940-41 because it was the biggest issue out there. But this was an entire perspective on American history, on American politics, and on the future of this country that they were trying to put forth. Um, and so I think, you know, what, one thing I've asked myself a few times is whether President Trump actually does know anything about the original America First movement. And I have no idea. I've, I've never met the man. I've never spoken to any of his advisors about that. But I think it's impossible to believe that nobody in his campaign, when he unveiled that slogan, knew what it was referencing. And I, and I think, you know, to a large extent, it is an accurate representation of the policies they're presenting.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you Does Trump just have a sort of good feel for the populist outrage? Now, I wonder, you know, there, you point out in the book, like, it's... The country is so unified again after World War II, right? And and you also have a big enemy in communism, and that's it's very different than Russia now. That doesn't have a sort of globalizing ideology; it's back to a simpler nationalism. But then it, it it's ca- it's capitalism, liberalism versus the the versus Marxist, you know, the communist project. All these things serve to unite the country and sort of make the post World War II consensus compelling to a wide swath of americans now with income inequality and certain things there people it seems like there's an ability to get people to question some of that consensus and and, and you know as you point out this is always part of the dna right like maybe it never fully goes away <laughs> and and you know it's almost like the the vaccination that the post world war ii success gave us maybe it's wearing off <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and I think one other interesting thing about the post-war world is, well, t- two interesting things. The first is that we ha- do have this post-war consensus where the Republicans, the Democrats basically come to the center. And what's fascinating is if you look at Republican Party platforms from the late 1940s, early 1950s, they're committing to things like increasing union membership, uh, reducing income inequality, increasing the welfare state, right? I mean, and this extends all the way through the Nixon years where Nixon creates the EPA, Um, sort of does all these things that Republicans today would never probably be advocating and certainly are advocating doing away with in some cases. So I think that's thing number one. But there is this other political anomaly that takes place in the 1950s, and that is, of course, McCarthyism. So McCarthy is the guy who really comes the closest to breaking that post-war consensus and it's very telling what happens to him. He ends up being condemned by the U.S. Senate driven into obscurity and and dying so you know there is this moment where the u.s comes close to the breaking point but it's telling how overwhelming that rejection is and what i think is very interesting and i talk about this a little bit in the book is imagine mccarthy if he had gone after former fascists as well um you know
0: yeah yeah you you said you make a case like you could do pretty well as a post-fascist as a nazi sympathizer in america you really had to be pretty prominent uh, we weren't like the Mossad running around <laughs> hunting you down. I mean, you could re- you you tell the story of several people that settle into pretty much normal American life after really being pretty sympathetic to them. yeah Americans.
1: absolutely. And and here's the other fascinating thing is that, that it's possible that some of these people are still alive. Um, you know, I talk about the German American boon having youth camps. Some of the kids in those camps would have been no more than nine, ten years old when they were there in 1940, potentially 1939 maybe a little bit earlier with the boon because they get shut down. But yeah, I mean, these people would be old, but they're still around. And, and for much of the 20th century, people were next door neighbors with these folks. They worked with people who were in the German-American boon. They worked with people who were in the Silver Legion, which is a very scary organization. And so there's, there's never any attempt to hunt these people down. Um, the only evidence I could find that, that the U.S. government was particularly worried about them was a background check form that I found in the archives from um, federal government employment in, I think, the early 50s, where there was a list of prescribed organizations, and the German-American Boond and the Silver Legion were on that list. But if that didn't come up in a background check, there was no way they were going to know whether you were actually a part of that or not.
0: Yeah, you write about these organizations, the Boone and the Silver Star in the book. And you know, as someone, you know, who's encountering a last material the first time, I'm just thinking these people seem so eccentric with the uniforms and these demonstrations. I mean, I'm thinking these people would look weird. But I mean, how, how weird was the popular perception of them at the time? Because you, today you'd imagine these people look, I mean, people sometimes think the Masons are weird. I mean, this is, I mean, now this is really, they seem a little strange.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would be the you know the, the closest analog we have today would be the militia movement—people who dress up in paramilitary uniforms and, and don't really do so much, so much of the parading. But certainly, you see video of them, you know, training out in the desert and things like that. So that'd be the closest analog. But we have to remember that Americans had seen a lot of this because number one, World War One, a lot of people had been in the military, so they were sort of more used to seeing military stuff on display than we are per, uh, perhaps today. Um, And secondly, if you had gone to the movies at any point in the 1930s, you were seeing newsreels from Nazi Germany and from uh, Mussolini's Italy and later on Franco's Spain. And these are countries where um, wearing the uniform and marching with a stiff-arm salute is pretty standard. So Americans, I think, would have been somewhat used to seeing that kind of thing. But it is, of course, very different, as I point out, to see people marching down streets in New York City, giving the Nazi salute and flying the swastika next to the American flag. And that's, in fact, what begins happening.
0: Yeah, today, you know, when Trump says there's very nice people on both sides, I mean, I generally don't think when I see Nazi flags that these are nice people. I I, I would go the other way. I'd find another protest. That's a, Call me a stickler, but once I see Nazi flags, I'm assuming that's not nice people.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and I think to, to certainly use that sort of symbolism today implies something very different than even did the 1930s. I mean, if you're using that kind of symbolism today, you are making a very explicit political statement as to what you believe in and, and you're frankly telling everybody else that you don't, you really don't care what they think. Um, again, this is it would be similar to flying the hammer and sickle or something like that. I mean, this is a, a discredited ideology, and in some ways, um, flying the swastika is even more provocative than flying the hammer and sickle.
0: Yeah, that again, it, this is something that's hard to imagine that it, that it could be less provocative, right? But people, I, I, I mean, you know, what is the average American, right, and in, in you know the late 30s, or early 40s know about? nazism and hitler right i mean what i mean what do you think how it's 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 obviously not the kind of synonym for pure unadulterated evil like it is now
1: no, absolutely not. And I cite some polling in the book uh, where they ask Americans if you had to choose between living under a communist government a fas- or a fascist government, which would you choose? And it's pretty evenly split. Um, the plurality of people in that poll don't answer the question or say they have no opinion. So that's maybe a way of concealing their views. Perhaps they simply don't think they don't know enough about these ideologies. Um, but, but to be evenly split between fascism and communism, this is bizarre. Um And again, it's a polling result that we would never see today. I mean, neither of those ideologies would command much support, I'm sure, but I'm going to guess that most Americans or many Americans are not going to want to live under a fascist system of government. But yeah, in the early 1930s, these are seen as viable political options. There are a lot of people who look at what's happening in Germany and say, this is success. Um, and, And think about what this means, right? Hitler has has unified the country by outward appearances. Um, You know, let's put all the racism and anti-Semitism to the side. But he's also economically revitalized the country. Um, The U.S. is mired in the Depression up until Pearl Harbor, really. It gets better, but it's nowhere near full economic recovery. And in 1936, Hitler has declared full employment in Germany. Um, The German, German assets are massively going up in value. And so American business people think that they're making money there, even though they can't actually get the money out um and so this does look quite successful i think what the dangerous delusion is here though is overlooking the dark side of the third reich um and one thing that's fascinating when you look at accounts of people who go and visit the country and this is something we've also forgotten about that it was fully possible to go to germany on vacation in the 1930s there were entire public relations firms that were trying to convince americans to go on vacation the third reich and many of the accounts that are written by people who go there are very positive they say there's no crime there's no graffiti um, and bizarrely, some of these people even visit concentration camps like Dachau and comment upon how well the prisoners are treated and how great um, this has been for law and order.
0: That's terrifying.
1: <laughs> it's extremely disturbing. It really is. And, and it's a reminder to us about how seductive these ideologies can be. Um, and again, I cite some accounts in the book of students who go and study in the Third Reich and say, oh, there's no oppression of the Jews whatsoever. It's totally fine. Um, and part of this is one's perspective, right? And, and simultaneously, I cite reports from students who say this is terrible. And that increases as the 1930s go on, obviously. In 1938, you have the Kristallnacht, which is obviously this huge outbreak of violence. And so after that, it becomes kind of tough to make this argument in public. Um, but up until that point, you have people who, who are going there, traveling, um, being feted by the German government. This is something the Germans do very well, actually. They, every, every American student who goes there gets introduced to German students. They do all these sort of people-to-people outreach programs. Um, They get taken on tours of the country. And of course, this is all very stage-managed stuff. But the Germans get what they want out of it, which is Americans coming back, especially American young people. Again, they're fascinated by the young. They think this is the future of fascism. Um, Coming back and saying the Third Reich is great. There's no oppression of the Jews at all. Um, and, and this is the future.
0: Yeah. And you talk about how there's only today, I mean, so many, there's so many students in college and, you know, it's such a big demographic, but then it's only like 5% of the population. So you can, and it's not the sort of kind of sixties rabble rousing crowd. I mean, this is a this is a, a, a small population one that's manageable right <laughs> where you can you can do this kind of campaign because it's not you know this this massive swath of the population like it is now
1: yeah absolutely it's a it's a tiny and elite cross-section of the population certainly there are not very many women who are going to to universities in this period and if they are they're going largely to all women's colleges um, and so there, there's this sort of gender segregation certainly there's huge racial inequality I mean almost everybody going to university in this period is white and so there is this sort of natural appeal and, and the Germans doing exploit this they put together these fantastic tours that that do even reading about them now i'm sure they would have been very impressive to go on um but but it's a very good gamble for them it's a very good bet because these americans are going to be the next generation of leaders if you can convince them of of not only the righteousness but also the effectiveness of your ideology and what you're doing then that's going to have a huge impact in the future
0: you talk about how hitler he does kind of have an admiration for henry ford Largely because of the anti Semitism or thing else. Yeah. But despite kind of this decadent view of capitalism, there is this very clever manipulation of business interests because there's a lot of money invested in Germany. And this kind of harsh stance on Germany that some of the interventionists are advocating, you have a lot of industrialists where that's bad for business, right? We got a lot of money over there. I mean, status quo is good for the bottom line.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And you're right about Henry Ford. Henry Ford is this this absolutely fascinating figure. I mean, the deeper I got into this project, the more fascinated I became with him because he is this industrial genius. I mean, he absolutely revolutionizes the automotive industry. He also is seen as this sort of strangely progressive industrial leader because he voluntarily pays his workers the highest wage in the industry. Um, this is partially self-serving as well because he wants them to buy Model T Fords with that money he's giving them. So it's creating a market for his own product. But Um, Yeah, a well-known anti-Semite. I quote Hitler at one point commenting that Henry Ford is the only American he really admires because he thinks he's the leader of a future fascist movement in the United States. And that's partially because... Um, industrial capacity and manufacturing capacity is very much a fascist obsession. This idea that not only does the country's racial strength have to be great, but also its industrial strength, its industrial capacity has to be tremendous. And so Ford becomes this very iconic figure there. But there are many American businesses. So is, this, is
0: this sort of nationalist kind of you? We need American steel. Like like you don't want to be interdependent. I mean, I cut a kind of classic free market theory thing. Do what you do best and export the, or outsource the rest. Right? You have. But that sort of makes you dependent on other countries that you might view as culturally alien and infectious. So, I mean, is that part of the... the the impetus to be the, being this sort of industrial power. you she got to be able to produce your own stuff?
1: Yeah, that's actually fascist economic theory is that the country should be entirely economically self-dependent, partially because you don't want to be dealing with other countries that, as you say, might be racially suspect or something like that. But also because if you're going to fight a huge war, you need a lot of stuff and you need to be able to produce it without uh, interference from outside powers. And as I point out in the book, the Third Reich has a huge problem with this in the oil industry. They simply don't have enough oil, and this becomes a huge issue during the war when they plunge into the Soviet Union and try to drive towards those southern oil fields because they desperately need uh, oil to run their tanks and, and their planes and, and their ships as well. I mean, this is obviously an essential component of warfare. So so they do have this huge issue, but um, yeah, American businesses do get deeply sucked in. I mean, General Motors is the other good example I talk about in the book because they have a subsidiary, Opel, which still exists. Um, that they very much see as a profitable part of their business. And it is a profitable part because automotive sales take off in the Third Reich when Hitler comes to power. So um, it it becomes very difficult and very controversial for American businesses to pull out because think about what your shareholders are going to say. If you're a publicly traded company, you're going to really justify walking away from millions of dollars in assets because you might be suspicious of another country's governmental system. I mean, even today, this would be seen as an incredibly controversial move. And of course, we know that, that leads to incredible tragedy because these uh, manufacturing facilities that are owned by American companies eventually get converted to military use, and they eventually end up using slave labor. And it's just an incredible tragedy.
0: I had a a woman a historian, Marcy Shore, on the podcast a couple of months back. She wrote a great book about the Ukrainian revolution. And she said, in the rise of populism here in the election of Trump, she said that her Americanist colleagues are all like, oh, you know, it's, it's you know, we're worried, but we have really resilient institutions. And she said, all right, my Slavic historian you know, friends, people who have studied Russia and Eastern Europe are like, head for the hills. Like, this is exactly what happens. One day things are great. The next day everything changes. I mean, I wonder, given your own time studying this fascist populist stuff, especially studying it here, what, how do you see the cultural moment now with the sort of populist uprising and some of the America first rhetoric that, you know, our current president still, you, I mean, going to the UN and, and saying, I'm against, I'm, I'm against globalism, uh you know, for patriot, Stephen Colbert said that's like going, you know, giving a wedding toast and saying, I'm against um, a monogamy, but I congratulate you. Here's my number when it fails. I mean, you know, I mean, does this worry you?
1: I I think there's a lot of worrying things going on. I think what I've been sort of watching very carefully, um, apropos this book as well, has been how mainstream politics has been co-opted by these forces. And this is something that I sort of predicted when we started seeing the rise of these populist groups. But one thing that we are very confident, as you just said, is that our institutions are resilient, that somehow they're going to survive this. Um, I'm not so sure about that necessarily. I mean, I think we're, we're already seeing Congress giving up a lot of its regulatory oversight for partisan political gain. Um, we're seeing um, law enforcement being increasingly sort of challenged in the way that they have traditionally done things by the administration on political grounds. Um, I'm, I'm not at all sure what's going to happen here. I think that... Um, One of the things that comes out in the book is that one of the reasons why Hitler's American friends were not successful was because the political parties resisted being taken over. And the closest moment they come to that is in 1938 when Gerald B. Winrod, who's this radical preacher in Kansas, actually runs for the GOP Senate nomination and is likely to win it because it's held by a weak Democrat. Um, Kansas is becoming a Republican state. An interesting aside is that the Democrat in that race is to this date the last Democrat to ever represent Kansas in the Senate, so uh, is a very. I mean, this is 1938, right? They've not elected another Democrat since then. Um, and and Winrod is going to win this race. It's very clear that he's on top. He's a, a regionally known figure because he's a radio preacher and evangelical minister. And the G- National GOP um, pulls support for him and nominates a mainstream. Um, I think it's former governor who defeats him handily. But had that not happened, it's very likely that this avowed Nazi sympathizer who had traveled to the Third Reich. And there were rumors that he had even taken money from the Third Reich, though those were never confirmed. That This guy would have ended up in the U.S. Senate. So that's the kind of of resistance that I think is really important. And and the other important moment, of course, comes in 1940 when um, I talk about this very nefarious plot to unseat Roosevelt using German money, direct election interference. Um, that fails because they can't find a candidate who has any viable chance of defeating Roosevelt. So even the money is not enough to to ensure this huge political shift in the U.S. But I think what, we're, what we should be looking at, at the moment here is how our politicians re- are responding to these changing circumstances and the actions that they are taking, and especially the rhetoric they're using um, in regards to this stuff.
0: Yeah, and do you think, I mean, you know, I, I've noticed uh, there was some... St- Polling from the Cato Institute that said that it's interesting that, for instance, Trump's evangelical supporters, although they like him because he's pro life and gives them judges, they don't reflect his racial views by and large. You know, they, 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 something like 70, some 75% or something, you know, report having very positive views and experiences of African Americans and Latinos and Jews, as opposed to like less than 30% or something of his sort of secular uh hardcore supporters and so these kind of more populist you know kind of the that demographic i mean it does, it does seem that there's tension although that i don't know that that plays out electorally strangely like it, 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 it it's sort of like you go and support him at the polls and you'll probably go again even though you don't like a host of his policy
1: yeah I, I think what we saw in the election of 2016 was in some ways a a culturally based election rather than anything else i mean i'm not sure how much that result reflected the policies being proposed by hillary clinton or donald trump as much as it did people's sort of implicit feelings towards those individuals um and incidentally i i actually predicted for the election that, that president trump would win um, in part because of this research that I had been doing here. I think that the, the appeals that he was making were actually very well thought out in many ways. You know, he has this reputation of sort of shooting from the hip and sort of spontaneously speaking to crowds. What he was doing was actually very calculated. Um, and he was making the same appeals that populists have always made in that way. And and I believed, in, and rightly so, that that was going to be successful for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You can just do the politics of wish fulfillment too, right? I mean, you can kind of... You promise a lot, you know? <laughs> And you'd got to tell people what they want to hear.
1: Well, yeah, and let's take, you know Charles Lindbergh as a good example of that. What's Lindbergh promising in forty forty one? He's saying we're going to keep America out of this terrible war that's happening in Europe. We're going to build an impenetrable fortress of air bases and naval bases all around the perimeter of our country. And we're going to be economically prosperous by cutting Europe off and doing business with Latin America. I mean, this is the politics of wish fulfillment as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. It's interesting. Somebody said that somebody formerly on the podcast, actually, Tom Nichols said, you know, in 2008, Barack Obama and John McCain had the sort of integrity to talk to the voters like adults, like to look at Rust Belt factories and say these jobs aren't coming back. No, they had different solutions to what that would be. But now it's really different. Like (laughs) people say things and people will sometimes buy it. You know, that's what's that's what's pretty wild.
1: Yeah. And and I think what Trump is doing economically is is entirely in line with his stated and avowed America first sort of motto and principles in that sense. I mean, look at what he's doing. He's trying to bring back industries that have been all but dead for the past 30, 40 years. Um, And it it is all part of this effort to place American interests above the interests of other countries. And so what I've been telling people for the past few weeks is that when you see these reports about the economic damage these tariffs are doing, they do not care about that. Economic nationalists do not care that Ford lost a billion dollars in profits in their latest uh, financial statements because they think that in the long term it's going to be better for them. If you can weather the storm and if you can bring those jobs back to the U.S., that economic nationalism is going to be better in the long term.
0: And Trump explicitly says this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he does not care about the short-term pain.
0: Yeah, and and also, I mean, it's so funny, too, I think, just a basic misunderstanding of things like tariffs, too, that that consumers generally have these things passed on to them. So the ignorance of the voter doesn't hurt this kind of nationalist populist cause, generally. (laughs)
1: No, no, it doesn't. And I mean, I I think you can sort of see the appeal of these things, quite obviously, for people who live in these in these areas. I mean, one thing that interests me is, um, you know, I sort of follow the president's schedule in terms of the rallies he's holding and things. And he keeps going back to West Virginia. This Mm -hmm. is the most pro Trump Mm -hmm. state in the country. But it's also the place that's most um, friendly to these types of appeals involving coal and then some extent, the steel industry. I mean, this is very much where that message resonates.
0: So in conclusion, 1940s, are we more resilient? In in the face of these kind of challenges,
1: uh,
0: than we were then less resilient. About the same. I mean. where are we on the barometer you think
1: i think i think it's both i think we're more resilient in the sense that our intelligence agencies and law enforcement is much more attuned to this threat than they were in 1940 fortunately um you know j edgar hoover kind of dropped the ball on this stuff frankly um uh, his focus on communism really kind of blinded him to the threat and that allowed the germans a great
0: communism, communism lingerie <laughs> lots of things He's going a busy on man, yes um
1: yeah. Um, But I think in other ways, we're we're more vulnerable. And I think the vulnerability comes through things like social media, which obviously did not exist back then. And while the Germans were quite successful at planting stories in the American press and influencing um, sort of American journalists in a lot of ways, and the British were as well, of course, there was this huge propaganda war going on. There was no ability to reach individual Americans with the level of micro-targeting that we see today. And so I'm very worried about this Uh, increase in disinformation, the sort of fake news phenomenon that everyone is sort of talking about, sort of the trendy term to throw around. But it's really just propaganda. Um, I think that's very worrying. And I think one, one aspect of this problem that needs addressing is Americans' credulity, if you will, to fake news, to disinformation. I think we really need to focus on education in civics, education in how the government actually works, and education in what's a legitimate source and what's not a legitimate source. And just because somebody posts something to Facebook or a random blog on the internet... It's not necessarily legitimate. So that's the kind of stuff that really worries me.
0: Well, if people want to get educated about the fascist sort of threats in our history and and, and how they're eerie perilous today, they could start with your book, Hitler's American Friends. It's a great book. And thanks for spending some time talking with me about it.
1: Thanks. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Bradley for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. It's a fascinating read. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.